Good morning and welcome. It's so good to be here together this morning and to be jumping back into our book of Isaiah. Let us pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be our teacher this morning. Highlight to us what you want us to know. Anchor your truth deep in our hearts. And we ask that you would usher us into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I feel super blessed this morning as we've been tackling lots of unfamiliar passages in Isaiah. I have the treat of Isaiah 6, one that's a little more familiar with his call to ministry. Um, And so since it's a shorter chunk of scripture, I'd like us to go ahead and read through that together this morning. So um, we'll read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Other words, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a major life and uh, a major event in the life of Judah now marks the timeline in Isaiah's prophetic commission. It is the year King Uzziah died. And King Uzziah was one of the better kings during this period in Judah's history. He generally sought the Lord and did what was right. But after he became powerful, pride became his downfall. And then he lived with leprosy the last years of his life. And this disease was the consequence of trying to burn incense in a way only authorized for the priests. But King Uzziah has died, but then in that same verse, there is quite a contrast. 
In the year that he died, Isaiah declares, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It is presented so matter-of-fact in our biblical text. But in today's communication, we'd expect all caps, lots of exclamation points, wow emojis, and lots of hashtags. Maybe hashtag my life has changed forever. You can think of some better ones, too. What Isaiah has said and seen is a big deal. King Uzziah has died, but the Lord sits on the throne high and exalted. And so majestic is the scene that only the train of the Lord's robe um, is enough to fill the temple. The Lord is grander than even the temple can contain. And this vision is so important for us, as well as for Isaiah. No political ruler can match the true kingship of the Lord. We can't put our trust in who is leading us on an earthly standpoint, but the king who sits on the throne. Earthly kings and rulers may come and go, rise and fall, but the power and the authority of the Lord cannot be shaken. We often think of the book of Daniel as the Old Testament counterpart to the book of Revelation. But in many ways, I think the book of Isaiah might fit that bill even better. Many people think of the events that Revelation describes as the focus of that book. Um, People are concerned about how to interpret the judgments or what to make of the woman and the dragon. Um, And all these are vital topics. But even more importantly, the book of Revelation reveals a person, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And the first... um, verse of that book even says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what does that have to do with Isaiah? I think the book of Isaiah does the same. The person of Jesus Christ is revealed in every chapter. We will continue to see hints of Christ's first coming, his virgin birth, his suffering, and the style of his ministry. And then we also see woven into almost every chapter the glorious account of his second coming in power and majesty, which we await. So Isaiah receiving this vision of the throne of God is what fuels his ministry. Isaiah's encounter where he beholds the Lord in his splendor and majesty will be what undergirds his ministry all the days of his life. Isaiah is not given an easy job, as we'll continue to see as the year unfolds, he must declare the destruction and the ruin of the place that he loves. He must proclaim, but most will be hardened to his message. But even more compelling to get him through this season of destruction, rejection, and pain is the vision of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, whose rule cannot be shaken. I think the key verse that unlocks our study this morning is one that our study guide pointed out to us from the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 12, and um, John interprets why the people of Israel do not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, despite all the miraculous signs that he has done. John quotes from the prophet Isaiah about blinded eyes and hardened hearts. Then the Gospel writer says a most profound truth. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The king on the throne is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Beholding his glory changes Isaiah's life forever. It is encountering Jesus and receiving his ministry to us 
that fuels whatever call we might have on our lives. So I'm going to say that again. It's encountering Jesus and receiving his ministry to us that fuels whatever call he may have on our life. This triumphant declaration of, I saw the Lord, is the best thing a person can say before they are launched into ministry. Mary said the exact same thing when she meets the disciples on the road on the morning of the resurrection. When we see the Lord, everything changes. When we encounter Jesus, he does in us whatever must happen for us to be ready and willing to consecrate our lives to him. Before Isaiah can speak further about the to the people of Judah about their sin, Isaiah recognizes that he too is a sinful man and that his sin must be dealt with. And the Lord provides the cleansing that Isaiah requests. Isaiah's need is ours too. We need the Lord to cleanse us of our sin, to forgive us so that we can be a vessel for his majesty and holiness. And it's amazing to think of all that Jesus accomplished to atone for our sin between that time that Isaiah receives the vision and our present day, all of that salvation history that was yet to unfold. And then other times our need is, um, is healing. We need to let Jesus heal our wounds in our hearts so we can more effectively show others that Jesus is the one that brings complete wholeness into our lives. Sometimes the Lord needs us to learn about trust before we can be sent out. We must be feeling secure in who we are in the Lord and his ability to care for us well. And if we're not solid in our identity in Christ, the rejection of others will hinder our perseverance in ministry. And often the Lord's servants just need to spend more time in his presence before they are ready for the next step. Jesus walked daily with his disciples for three years. They watched him do ministry. They did ministry together. And then Jesus was ready to send them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And more than anything else, Jesus has called us as his disciples to be with him. Most of all, I love that phrase that when Jesus does call his disciples, it's not just to be his ministry partners, but it's to be with him. He called the disciples to be with him. And then some of God's people just need a clearer picture of God's goodness and perfect love before they can be consecrated to the Lord's work. I laugh so hard whenever I read um, what Christian satirist Jonathan Acuff describes as why Christians are afraid to surrender their lives fully to Jesus. And his stuff's about 10 years old, but it's hilarious. Um, And so I want to read you this excerpt. It's a well-known Christian fact that if you surrender your life to God, if you truly turn over your hopes and dreams to him, and truly give him control of your entire life, the first thing he's going to do is to send you to Africa immediately. You'll go from zero to hot in about 3.9 seconds. So if you don't like the idea of being insanely poor and living in the desert in a thatch lean-to and eating, I don't know, a steady diet of bugs, you should probably not give God everything you've got. Because it's a safe bet that if becoming a missionary in Africa is the most miserable thing you can imagine happening to you, that's probably the first thing God is going to do when you become a Christian. So all joking aside, Acuff, I think, has struck a nerve. 
It can be hard for us to trust Jesus' leadership and to fully surrender when it comes to his plans for our life. We look at what Isaiah was asked to do, and we kind of want to rethink why we want to surrender ourselves to Jesus' bidding. And while it hasn't always been easy for me, I'm thankful to be at the point in my life where I have some history with Jesus and his leadership in my life, and I can see how he has proven himself faithful over and over again, and so I can do whatever the Lord asks me to do. We hope. So, uh, I will say of all the ministry assignments the Lord has given me over the years, if I would have known about them before I was ready, I would have run the other way, just like Jonah did. But Jesus' leadership is good. He prepares his people. In God's goodness and mercy, he waited in the right time to my life, in my life, to give me instructions and directions about different things I'd be doing. For instance, as a SoCal girl headed back to New Jersey for seminary, I literally said, who would want to do ministry here? These words came out of my mouth as I stopped at a small church along some cornfields in Ohio for a friend's examination for ordination. I prayed that evening that um, my friend, that the Lord would send him some nice pastor friends, and then I drove on my merry way um, out to New Jersey. Little did I know then that less than a year later, the Lord was going to call me to the cornfields of Ohio as an answer to that prayer. But thankfully, Jesus did all that was needed to ready my heart, and I moved to Ohio to serve as associate pastor, and I did it with a happy heart and willing spirit. Another funny example, as a teenage, as a teenager, my mother was a hospice nurse, and I was very perplexed by this, and I didn't really understand how things work, and so I often admonished her, Mom, no dead bodies in the car. <laughs> I don't know why I thought she'd do that, but I just wanted to make sure she knew that that was out of bounds. <laughs> but little did I know later that um, 15 years would pass, and God would call me to be a hospice chaplain. Uh, for five and a half years, but I never had to put anybody's body in my car, thankfully. Uh, but I did this ministry, too, with a happy and willing heart. And then while I was in Ohio, I remember telling the Lord, I can't ever imagine Sean and I living in the South. We just aren't formal people. But again, when the timing was right, the Lord called, and here I am in North Carolina with a happy heart. So I say all this to help us overcome our fear of commitment to uh, Jesus when we ponder what Isaiah's call was and how daunting it was. I wonder if Isaiah might have a similar story. Perhaps in the earlier years of his life, Isaiah told the Lord, these people here in Judah are quite rebellious and wicked. Please do something about it. And then in God's time, Isaiah got to be a part of the answer. Often when we look at this chapter in Isaiah, we stop at verse 8 with uh, Isaiah's willingness. Here I am, send me. But then we skip over the difficulty of what he was sent to do. Sometimes I think that's a disservice because the Lord often does ask his people to do really challenging things. But in another sense, I think that's okay that we don't typically dwell on the immense challenge of his summons. Isaiah didn't. Isaiah had seen the glory of the Lord Jesus. Whatever he was sent to do, it was totally worth him. When we encounter Jesus, we recognize that he is completely worthy of any sacrifice, of any hardship, or any loss that we might endure. 
if we have a glimpse of his throne and his glorious rule, and we have let him change our lives, we are ready. There's another scene of the exalted Lord Jesus that very much matches what Isaiah saw. And so I'd like us to take a look at this throne room scene in Revelation 4. And instead of reading along, I'd invite you to close your eyes and picture what you can. There's too much imagery to really think about, but just picture in your mind's eye what you can um, from Revelation 4, verses 2 through 11. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a glass, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In the following scene to these verses, there is a similar despondency over unworthiness as they prepare to open the scroll. But thankfully, there is one who is worthy to open the scroll, the lamb who was slain. In Isaiah's time, this, his throne room scene provided a theological and experiential anchor in his life as he prepared for that destruction to come upon Judah. And then in the book of Revelation, the throne room scene of the slain lamb provides an anchor for the seals of judgment that are about to be opened for the church under persecution that needs to be reminded of who the Lord is. When we behold the majesty, the power, the glory, and the worthiness of the righteous king who judges, we can endure whatever lies before us. Whenever there's something in our life that we just think we can't endure this a bit more, we think of him, the worthy lamb who was slain. In both of these scenes, there are angelic beings with a sole purpose whose night and day uh, job is to worship, declaring the holiness and worthiness of the Lord who sits on the throne. In both scenes, we see that there's thunder and quaking. The infinite power of God cannot be contained. In these scenes, the beholders are undone in worship. 
Isaiah's response is similar to all who have beheld even just a glimpse of God's glory. Of the radiant king, he falls down as dead. Or he says, woe is me. And then when John first beholds that radiant king, he falls down as dead. Yet it's this glimpse of this powerful and glorious king that we most desperately need. Author Annie Dillard says we should wear crash helmets and seatbelts when we go in to worship God. As there's something very powerful going on when we invite God's presence and holiness into a room. When Moses was feeling overwhelmed about the ministry that the Lord had entrusted to him, he boldly asked, now show me your glory. And the Lord says, yes. As he answers, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord's glory, his mercy, his love, and his judgment are inseparable. When we behold Jesus, God's infinite holiness, and his infant goodness are present in perfection. More of God's presence and a vision of who he is is what Isaiah needed for his ministry, and it's what we need for ours. Let's pray. Lord, we are a thirsty, broken, and sinful people, desperate for you. And yet we are bold like Moses to beg. Show us your glory. If we are going to do anything well in your service, we need to be undone and remade in your presence, in the worship of you. And so, Lord, in your goodness, reveal yourself to us and ready us heart, mind, body, and soul for the ministry you have already placed us in and prepare us for what lies ahead. In Jesus' name.